My name is Cindy. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. Hi, you all uh, know how easily moved I am. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous is, in my experience, a very moving thing. You um, have moved me incredibly over the years since I've been with you. Um, I sort of feel... It just occurred to me, uh, I sort of feel like I used to in the old days, like I, I told you too much last night, and now I have to tell you the truth today. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> as some of you pointed out this morning, uh, I'm dressed as if I were in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> that's That's very typical. Of me, uh, you know, however I feel at any given moment, uh, that's the way I'm going to feel forever. <laughs> and uh, since it was 70 degrees at 6 o'clock yesterday morning in Tucson, I figured it would be that way here. <laughs> I mean, if it hurts, it's going to hurt forever. If it feels good, it's going to feel good forever. If it's 60 degrees, it'll always be 60. And um, you all have helped me a lot to learn to flow with the changes in my life. I still don't sometimes, but I get better at it one day at a time. Um, Minneapolis AA is beautiful. I've heard a lot about it for a long time. I, I had never, however, heard about one aspect of your program. When somebody came up to me last night and said, I'm a part of Squad 5, I felt like say, not me. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> Uh, but I, <laughs> back in Kansas, the squad is different than it is here. <laughs> um, I understand better what you mean by squad, and it's beautiful. And and essentially, that's what sobriety has been for me, um, to come to understand a lot of things in a different way. Um, let me tell you a little bit what it used to be like. Uh, I, I basically have no excuse, no reason, no right to be a drunken junkie. I grew up in a beautiful home out in the country outside Kansas City, Missouri. I had a loving mother and father, a sister and brother who I cared for and they cared for me. And I grew up laughing and playing and full of love and joy and light and I grew up in a church called Unity. Uh, Unity teaches that God is love, and I'm an expression of that love, and that um, there is no evil. All things come together in divine order. Well, when I was 18 years old, I left home, and I went away to college, and uh, it was in the early 60s, and... <laughs> Those of you who remember the early 60s remember that they were characterized by a lot of anger. Everybody was mad about something. There were movements to change everything. Uh, the SDS, the Black Power Movement, the Women's Movement, that everybody was angry. And I didn't understand. Um, I thought maybe they were mad at me. <laughs> and that that is very typical of me. I have what I understand today to be an undue sense of responsibility. Um, <laughs> I'm getting a little better. 
uh, you know, I don't, I don't take as much responsibility as I used to for the kids who are starving in China. Uh, <laughs> it is not my fault today, uh, but um, that does not remove my responsibility to be aware. Anyway, um, when I became so frightened that first year in college, I began to drink. And I am living proof that a person can drink and try to drink like a lady for 15 years and never do it. Never. <laughs> I have never in my experience with alcohol been able to drink like a lady. I somewhere along the way became aware that there's a great difference in drinking like a man, drinking all you can hold, and drinking like a lady, which means drinking just two glasses of sherry. Uh, <laughs> it became my attempt to drink like a man. <laughs> and uh, I never did that either <laughs> um, for lots of reasons. But at any rate, I got into trouble every time I drank. And I got into so much trouble that first year that I did what a lot of people in those days did when they got afraid and when they saw that they weren't doing well, I um, got married. I decided that that would solve my problems, that I would find a strong, wealthy man to take care of me. And so I found one. And I married a member of the Wichita, Kansas Jet Set. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> And um, <laughs> he was 10 years older than I, and he uh, raced sailboats on Lake Minnetonka, as a matter of fact, and all over the country. And we snow skied in the winter. And every time we went anywhere or did anything, we included in our activities cocktail parties. And he used to look at me and he used to say, I don't know what happens. I dress you up, I buy you these wonderful suits and these beautiful clothes, and you put them on and you smile and you look radiant, and I turn around and you're struck drunk. <laughs> I never saw anything like it. Uh, and I never had seen anything like it either. Uh, I didn't understand. I, you know, to me it was the most baffling thing I have ever experienced. I did not know why I set out with such good intentions and came to such incredibly painful conclusions. Um, it, it was the most baffling experience um, that I know of, my experience with alcohol. It removed everything from me. Um, and finally, um, in 1964, we decided we'd have a baby to salvage the marriage. And... Um, I promptly got pregnant and had a beautiful young son, and I was perfectly happy to stay home and take care of him and watch him grow and be a good mother, whatever that was, for about six months. <laughs> and then he sort of got up on his feet and started tottering around, and I thought, well, he doesn't need me anymore. I'm going back to school, and I did. Uh, that's the story of my life, going back to school. <laughs> I have gone back to school for years and years and years. And um, so I went back to school, and needless to say, the marriage didn't last much longer after that. We were divorced in 1966. 
I promptly took to drink, took to the mental hospitals. Um, I had a nervous breakdown in 1967. I was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. I know today I was suffering from the disease of alcoholism. But what I had looked a lot like paranoid schizophrenia. And they locked me up and they put me in a tiny room and they strapped me to the bed with leather straps and they gave me shock treatments every other day. And they said, you will get better. <laughs> and I didn't. And I finally left that hospital, hospital against medical advice. Um, I had a number of experiences there, which I'm sure we, many of us have shared. I heard a lady say it beautifully. When you come out of a mental hospital, everybody thinks you loved it because you have this big smile on your face. But that's from eating with those great big spoons. <laughs> 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 we had a on the on the ward where I had that experience uh, square dances every Wednesday night, and of course everybody was loaded to the eyebrows on Thorazine, and uh, doing the square dance on Thorazine is quite an experience. <laughs> you probably heard about the Thorazine shuffle and paper slippers and uh, a lot of drooling and a lot of uh, you know. Very painful experiences, but it's the kind of pain that you can't do anything about because it's all inside. Your outsides can't function because of the drugs they give you, and your insides scream out and say, my God, just help me, and you can't say what's wrong, and they don't know. So I came out of that hospital, and my dearest mother took me home and fed me, patched me back up, sent me out into the world. And I went into graduate school in 1968. It took me eight years to get my bachelor's degree, by the way. Um, <laughs> and in 1968, I went back into graduate school. And um, in that year, a man came into my life, and he said, Honey, you are an incredible lush. He said, I have the cure for what ails you. And he sat me in a chair, and he tied me off, and he mainlined me with morphine. And he cured my alcoholism on the spot. I became a junkie immediately because narcotics were my answer for a number of years. And um, that experience ended finally in 1972. In 1970, I was hospitalized again with serum hepatitis and chronic heroin addiction. In that year, my whole world completely collapsed. In July of 1970, a man came to my hospital room and said, I have come to inform you that you've lost the right to raise your son. Another man came to my hospital room and said, I have come to tell you that you have lost the right to pursue your education. Get out of town. My mother again came to that hospital room and said, honey, come on home. And mother and dad took me home, and dad sat me down in a chair, and he said, sweetie, you've had a rough time. Have a martini. My daddy knew what I needed, because it's what he needs so desperately. My father is a suffering alcoholic. We drank together for many years. My sobriety is a great threat to him. I have tried to share Alcoholics Anonymous with him, and I cannot do it.
Somebody will someday, if that's his pet. I'm only grateful that it's mine. Anyway, I went home again with Mother and Dad, and they patched me up again, and they sent me back out into the world. As a matter of fact, two years later, Mother and Dad ran away from home. <laughs> uh, they moved to Florida. And um, in 1972, I had been working for about a year for a veterinarian in Kansas City, Missouri. I had told him when he hired me that I was a recovering addict and I would appreciate it if he would lock up his drugs. And he looked at me and he said what people have often said. He said, honey, I can tell you're not that kind of girl. You'll never do it again. And I, of course, wanted to believe that. He didn't lock up his drugs, and within a very short time, I was into them again. And, you see, during that time, I was operating with the knowledge that I had lost the right to raise my son. And um, for those of you who have had that experience, you know what it's like. Um, you know that you can justify the use of any drugs any alcohol, anything to blot out the pain of the knowledge that you're an unfit mother. Especially when that label fits and when you know it's true and when you know deep within you that you can't change it. That no matter how much you'd like to be a fit mother, whatever that is, you can't do it. And so I drank and I tried to see my son and his father said, you will never see him again except under supervised circumstances. Only when somebody is there to control the situation and to watch you. In January of 1972, I had an experience that I imagine many people here have shared. My boss came to me on a Friday night and he said, um, the, last, the last few weeks have been the last few weeks. Either do something about your problem or get out. I did something about my problem that evening. I took a bottle of Demerol from the clinic. I took a bottle of scotch that I kept under the sink. And I went home and I shot Demerol and I drank scotch all night. And I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. And I had that amazingly terrifying experience when drugs simply didn't work. The next morning, I uh, went to a restaurant to try to eat. And uh, I walked in, and there was one seat available at a counter in a, this very large restaurant in, in the plaza in Kansas City. I very seldom went there. It seemed like a good place to go. <laughs> and um, I sat down in that seat, and I tried to eat, and I wasn't very good at it in those days. I ate like a lot of us do when we're suffering. I gagged a lot <laughs> and tried to swallow, and it wouldn't go down, and I didn't know how to bring it up. And it, I gave up. And um, the man sitting next to me, turned to me finally and said, it looks like you've had a rough time. And I said, yes. And he said, I, uh, I understand. 
I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, I'm not. I, I'm a junkie. And he said, you smell funny. <laughs> and I said, I drink to stay off drugs. And he said, does it work? And I said, no. To make a long story short, he took me to a friend of his because he had had no experience with drugs. But he had a friend in Alcoholics Anonymous who had had experience with drugs. So he took me to a guy named Bill. And I'd like to share with you how I came to you because it's the only way I could have gotten here. God, as I understand him, knew exactly what I needed to get to you. As I see it today, my God walked with me that morning into that restaurant and said somewhere deep within me, honey, you've had enough. And I had, I had had enough. So David took me to Bill, and Bill 13 stepped me into Alcoholics Anonymous. For those of you who don't know, the 13th step is where you lie in bed and talk about the other 12. And um, it is the only way I could have gotten to you. It is the only thing I understood at that point in my life. I experienced a lot of guilt over that for a long time. I don't anymore. I share it today for those of you who might experience guilt if you got here that way. As far as I'm concerned, there is no wrong way to get here. There's just getting here. That is what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. Just getting here. And then staying, no matter what. So Bill took me to bed and then took me to a meeting. And when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had, um, I had no idea. What was going on with you? You were laughing and loving each other. And uh, I thought you must be out in the back room getting high on some miracle drug that I had not yet discovered. <laughs> I felt you. I felt something going on within you that I had lost. And as the result of my experience with Bill, I wanted what you had. And very simply, it's the only way I could have wanted what you had. So I kept coming to your meetings. And as a friend of mine says, you took me in your arms and you rocked me to sleep. You loved me back into loving myself. Because I had, when I got to you, absolutely nothing left. I had lost the right to my life. And I had every right to lose that right. As far as I was concerned, I had no right to live. I had given it up. I had somewhere lost the right to love. I had drowned my ability to care. I knew that you cared about me, and I could not care about you. I just simply didn't care. But I kept coming back because you did. Only because you needed me. I did not have enough left inside of me to need you. I didn't know what I needed except another drink or another fix or another pocket rocket, as Brian says. I, I did not know that I needed you. So I couldn't. But thank God you needed me. 
And you just said, keep coming back. And you began to walk with me on my incredible journey into Alcoholics Anonymous. You moved me so well. Um, as I said last night, when I came to you, I had gotten myself into a situation of supporting a hundred-dollar-a-day habit. And you don't do that legally. You don't do it morally. You don't do it right. You just do it. And you do whatever you have to to get it together every day to feed whatever habit you've got going. Alcohol, narcotics, pills, it doesn't matter. You just do whatever you have to do. If it's write a script, turn a trick, whatever you have to do, you do it. And then I came to you, and you said you don't have to do it anymore. And you didn't care what I had done to get to you. You just cared that I was with you. And you did everything in your power to help me keep coming back. And um, <clears throat> I had a number of slips after I got to you because I didn't think I had within me the ability to live without drugs. Five doctors had told me that in order to live my life, I would have to depend on drugs. I would have to take tranquilizers to make it through a day. I would have to take sleeping pills to sleep at night. And I would have to drink coffee to get up in the morning. I believed those doctors. It took me a while to believe you when you said, they're wrong. We have found a different way. It took me a while to believe in your way. As I understand it today, that was absolutely necessary. I had to try everything I tried with every drug I tried it before I could try the 12 steps. As far as I'm concerned today, the formula for self-discovery, the formula for sobriety, the formula for self-awareness, for getting to know who I am, the formula for everything in my life today is steps 1 through 12 inclusive. They do it all for me today. Part of my journey involved going to a conference in upstate New York. When I was about 90 days sober for the third or fourth time, I was the 90-day wonder. They said to me, try it for 90 days, 90 meetings in 90 days. I'd try it. It felt like it didn't work and I'd get drunk. But I knew drinking didn't work too, so I came back. I understand today that I finally stayed sober because I had no other choice. I've heard people in AA say, we have a choice. I don't. As long as I had the choice to drink and use, that was my choice. Alcohol and drugs no longer work for me. I do not have that choice today. Today I have made the choice of sobriety and I'm stuck with it. And sometimes it, it hurts a lot, but it also brings the greatest joy I've ever known. I am today as totally committed to sobriety as I was to addiction. The change has been incredible. It has been because of you and with you. Um, <clears throat> so I went to a conference in upstate New York, and at that conference I met a man. His name was Tommy, and I fell in love. Now remember, I could not love. I had lost the ability to love. I didn't know how. I didn't know any good reason to love. Because on the streets you can't care. If you care, you're vulnerable. And you can't be vulnerable. You have got to make yourself as hard and tough as you possibly can. 
You can't let anybody know that inside you're dying. Outside, you got to look good. you got to look cool. you got to be together. As a friend of mine says, you're stuck in sneak gear. <laughs> and that's exactly where I was. And I looked at Tommy, and he looked at me, and he said, let us love you back into loving yourself. And I said, okay. <laughs> and he did. And he put his arms around me. And we took off on a beautiful journey together. We went back to Kansas City, where I lived and worked at that time. And um, Tommy became aware of the situation with my son and the incredible pain that I experienced when I would drive 200 miles to visit him, and they would be gone. And I'd come home defeated again in such great pain. And finally, Tommy said, let's go to California. Let's let go and let God. I have learned a lot about letting go and letting God. I do it better each day. I have also become aware that there are times when I let go and let God and still hurt my cow. And that's okay. That's a part for me of letting go and letting God. If it still hurts, that's part of it. We went to Southern California to Laguna Beach. And... um <laughs> um, we moved in with two members of Alcoholics Anonymous, a man named Bobby and his wife, Taylor. Taylor was dying of cancer, very slowly, and yet very quickly. Um, Taylor took one look at me and she said, Honey, what you need is a woman's stay. We have a beautiful woman's meeting here on Monday night. I will take you as soon as I feel better. And I said, Taylor, my dear, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women. I have nothing to share with a group of women. I am, after all, a man's woman. <laughs> um, she looked at me and smiled with her beautiful, radiant smile, and she said, Honey, I understand. I love you, and I will take you to a woman's meeting. <laughs> And on a Monday night in April of 1973, Bob had taken Taylor to a hospital because she was going. And he called about 7 o'clock and he said, Taylor will not make it through the night. And I said, Bob, I will wait here by the phone for whatever. And he said, no, Cindy. He said, you go to that meeting tonight. You go for me, you go for Taylor, and you go for you. And I did. And Taylor died sometime during that meeting that night. And she passed on to me her sobriety. I have not had a drink or a drug since that night. God, as I understand God, works in every way that he can. And... um Taylor got me to that woman's meeting in her way, in God's way. The men of Alcoholics Anonymous got me sober. The women have kept me sober. That meeting on Monday nights in Laguna Beach helped me find who and what I am. 
Those women talked about how it feels to be a woman, what it is like to experience the humiliation and degradation of a woman who is a drunken junkie. They talked about things they could not know. They talked about all of my secret shame, all of my secret guilt. They somehow knew about it. In my humble opinion, there is nothing like the dignity of a recovering woman who is an alcoholic because we have so totally lost our dignity when we get here. And when we get it back, it is a magnificent thing. It is a beautiful gift that we share with each other. It is one of the most beautiful gifts that I have today to say to you, whatever it is, it is okay. It is a perfect part of a perfect journey. And so Tommy and I laughed and loved beautifully in Laguna Beach. We had a totally AA way of life. Um, when we met, Tommy was a carpenter. I was not, by the way, a lady. <laughs> I was a secretary. <laughs> and um, it, it took a while for me to become a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I was a secretary then. And in our five-year journey together, Tommy became a writer and wrote and published four books. I went back to the university, finally, after a five-year forced leave of absence. <laughs> and um, it is so remarkable how all of this works because... For the five years that I was out of school from 1970 to 1975, I periodically tried everything I could think of to get back into the university. And everything I tried didn't work. But in 1975, when it was time for me to go back to school, it was the easiest thing I've ever done. Everything went perfectly because it was very simply time. And when it's time, there's no way you can stop it. And when it's not, there's no way you can make it go. <laughs> it's so simple that it escapes me sometimes. <laughs> At any rate, um, in 1975, I went back to the university. And um, <clears throat> in two years, I finished my doctoral dissertation and graduated with a Ph.D. in psychology after 18 years. Um, I would like to say right now, in case I forget, whatever you have dreamed, whatever you have hoped for, whatever you have tried for, for God's sake, dream it, hope for it, go for it. In sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous, there are no limits. There is nothing I cannot do or be or have in this program. It is all available to me with you. There are no limits to my life today. See, if it were left to me to define, I would say, God, I'd like one this big and this tall and green, and that's probably what I get. But if I leave it to God, it has infinite dimension and every color you can think of. God does it so well. That is why our 11th step is so perfect. 
That is why I learn more each day about praying only for the knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. That, to me, is the most perfect prayer. It is the only one that I need today. Because left to God, it is infinite. Left to me in my human limitations, it is limited. So I try, whenever possible, to let God do it. A friend of mine has a beautiful sign in her bathroom. It says, Dear Katie, let me do it today. Love God. So it was my experience with Tommy to fall totally in love, to become totally vulnerable, to open myself slowly one day at a time to the experience of, of love as we understand it in Alcoholics Anonymous. In AA, for me, I have experienced motherly love, brotherly love, sisterly love, fatherly love, the love of a man and a woman. Every possible kind of love is available in this program. And I was so shut off to it when I got here, and you opened me up to it so totally. And Tommy was a very important part of that experience. I totally fell in love. And (laughs) in June of 1977, I graduated with my Ph.D., and two days later, Tommy came to me, and he said, Honey, something's wrong. And I said, It is? And he said, yes, I'm going to move down the street for a few days and see if I can sort it out. And I said, you're going to what? I came home the next day, and by God, his typewriter and his clothes were gone. And he was, in fact, down the street. And he came by the house a couple of weeks later, and he said, Cindy, I want a divorce. And I said, you what? At that point in my life, I had four years of continuous sobriety. I had four years of doing the best I could one day at a time to work these steps. I had, by my own choice, come to love the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12th step of this program, which every time I work it gives me back to me. Every time I work with a newcomer to AA or a wet drunk, I look into a mirror of what it used to be like. I remember what happened, and I experience incredible gratitude for what it's like today. The 12th step to me is an incredibly spiritual experience. It gives me back to myself. And I had spent four years doing the very best I knew how. And when Tommy said to me, I want a divorce, I said, why? Oh, my God, why me? What have I done wrong? Where have I failed? What is wrong with my program? What step have I not been working? Why me? (laughs) Um, I would like to have been able to walk through that experience gracefully, with a lot of dignity, with my head held high, I fell apart. I cried for days. I hurt with a pain that I have never known before that experience. Because before I came to you, I did not know pain. If it hurt, I used. I made the pain go away. 
In the summer of 77, I had pain and I could not escape it. I learned in that summer, very simply, to let the pain grow me. Because you came to me and you put your arms around me and you said we cannot take your pain away. We wouldn't if we could. Because it will grow you up. But we will love you through it. And you put your arms around me and you very simply loved me while I hurt. And I hurt so totally. I hurt at a depth that I didn't know I had. And on a night when I was in such great pain, I didn't want to live, I called a friend of mine and I said, Bob, I can't take it. I can't drink and I can't stay sober. I can't laugh. I can't do anything but hurt. How do you survive? How do you stay sober? How do you want to live when it hurts everywhere? When everything you've worked for looks like it's over? When you've spent 18 years of your life as a student and they cut you loose. They gave you a terminal degree and said goodbye. (laughs) When you've lived five years with a man that you love in a way you've never loved and he says it's over. How do you live when your life is ending? And he said a lot of things to me on the phone that night. He said, please remember with me that every ending has within it a beginning. There is No end without a beginning. It has within it a new beginning. But he said, Cindy, love, you have your fingers in a door that is closing. In fact, you have your fingers in a door that is closed. (laughs) The sooner you get your fingers out of that door that has closed, the less time they will have to be bandaged. He said, when you can get your fingers out of the door that has closed, another will open. Out of all the things he said that night, I heard that. I heard it in a way that I have heard many things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard it, but I didn't know how to do it. So I did what you have taught me to do. I got down on my knees and I said, God, help me get my fingers out of the door that has closed. I don't know how to do it. Just help me get my fingers out of the door that has closed. And I prayed all night, and I cried all night, and I hurt all night. Now, up to that point in time, I had worried for at least two years about what in the world I was going to do when they graduated me, when I was faced with the necessity of actually working. (laughs) I had worried about finding a job. Graduate students are chronically worried. And I was so worried about finding a job. And do you know, it never occurred to me to worry about my marriage. That shows how useful it is for me to worry. (laughs) I have never yet worried about the right thing. (laughs) Never. Any more than I ever was able to drink like a lady, I've never hit it with my worry. After that night of prayer and pain, the next day, I think my God again knew that I had had it, that I needed an immediate demonstration. And the next day, the phone rang, and a man said, 
We would like to invite you to come to Tucson, Arizona to interview for a position of assistant professor with us. Are you interested? <laughs> you know, it is so remarkable, the timing of things. Um, in looking back on it, I can see how perfect it is, but at the time, I look around and say, what? <laughs> I can't go for an interview for a position as, this, this, as assistant professor. I am falling apart. My whole world has collapsed around me. How am I going to go to the University of Arizona and talk to these people about the rest of my life when I can't get it together and brush my teeth? <laughs> I said, God, what are you doing? It isn't time. I'm not ready. <laughs> And as usual, God, as I understand him, said, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Whether you know it or not or like it or not, or not, you are ready, my dear. You are going to go. And so in a few days, I got on a plane and I flew to Tucson, Arizona, and I went through the interviews, and it was, again, one of the easiest things I've ever done because it was time. I was, in fact, ready. In spite of myself, in spite of what I thought, in spite of what I ha felt, I was, in fact, just ready. And the interviews went beautifully, and the people I talked with were people I wanted to work with. And um, I was hired as assistant professor at the University of Arizona in, guess what, the Addiction Studies Program. <laughs> All of a sudden, on that day in the summer of 1977, my whole life made sense. All 37 years fit together in an incredibly perfect package. It had never made sense until that point in time. And on that day, I looked back over my life and I said, Oh my God, it is a thing of incredible beauty. It was all necessary, as a matter of fact. It was all absolutely essential to get me to today. It is a thing of incredible beauty. And so, overnight, I went from being a happily married student living on the beach in Southern California to being a single professor living in the desert. And I have no idea what happened. <laughs> As I am fond of saying, I had absolutely nothing to do with any of it. My life turns out to be none of my business. <laughs> I just show up every day, and I say very simply, God, use me and use me well, because I know he will. I know he has, and I know he always will. He does with me exactly what I need to have him do with me. I invite all of my experiences into my life. <laughs> I uh, read a beautiful story a while back about a man of God talking with an atheist. And the atheist says, okay, so you believe in God. Can your God create a two-year-old tree in 30 seconds? And the believer said, of course. As a matter of fact, the two-year-old tree exists right now. It will just take you two years to grow up enough to see it.
And uh, so it took me 18 years to go into the job that was waiting for me. Um, the summer that I left Laguna Beach was, again, the most painful experience of my life, I thought, because I left behind the people who had walked with me through four years of sobriety, the people who had gone before me and taught me how, the people who had come along behind me and held me up and supported me. When I heard that summer, my babies came around me and said things like, don't you remember when you said, and remember that, and don't you remember how, and I said, oh my God, did I say that? <laughs> That's wonderful, who said that? <laughs> I, I forget so quickly, you know. I just, it, it's amazing how quickly I plunge into despair. How quickly I forget. But that's part of it, I guess. I guess that's the only way I can be, because then I have babies who come and say, don't you remember? And I say, oh, yeah, I had forgotten. And so I packed my memories in cardboard boxes, and I moved to the desert. And I moved into a position that scared the living hell out of me. <laughs> um, and uh, I did the best I could, one day at a time. The man who hired me is a beautiful man. He's the kind of boss that I have always worked for. And two months ago, the director of my program resigned to take another position. And the dean of the school of which my department is a part called me in and appointed me acting director. <laughs> And again, I'm not ready. <laughs> again, I'm saying, wait a minute, God. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, yes, you are, baby. Do it one day at a time. Just get up in the morning and do it one day at a time. Just put your feet on the floor and say, here I am, Father. Use me. And he will. And so... Um, I mentioned to you that in 1970 I lost the right to raise my son. Over the years, he and I, what time we shared together, talked a lot about the day we would be together. He and I have both wanted that for a long time. We have both worked toward it. He is father for his father's perfect reasons. <laughs> married another woman who has a problem with drugs and alcohol. I often wondered why my son requires two drunken mothers. <laughs> and just when I got sober, his father married another one. <laughs> I don't know. And maybe I'm not supposed to. As a matter of fact, when I don't understand, it's a gift from God to help me see that I need faith. My father's experience, or my son's experience with his stepmother was incredibly painful. 
And he called me a lot, and we talked a lot. And finally, in January of 1978, he stepped off a plane in Tucson, Arizona, and he came to live with me. Now, through my years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had talked to so many women who had lost their children, and they had shared with me their experience, strength, and hope. And at a conference when I was newly sober, a woman in Cleveland, Ohio, stood at a podium, and she talked about having lost her children and then drinking and drinking until she lost the right to ever see them again. And then she went on to tell this beautiful story about sobriety and her journey into sobriety and how she never drank again. And after she talked, I went up to her and I said, how is that possible? How can you lose your children and then lose the right to see them again and then get sober and never drink again? I don't understand how anybody can do that. And she looked at me and she said, honey, we all lose our children someday. You and I just lost ours a little sooner and it's because there's something else for us to do. So get off your ass and do it. Again, again, it is so very simple. It makes such infinite sense when I can see it. But boy, sometimes I can't see it. Another woman at another conference stood at the podium and she said, I just want to share with you, if you have lost the right to raise your children, hold yourself in readiness. They will return. And oh my God, let me stand at this podium today and say, if you have lost your children, hold yourself in readiness. They will return at some point in your life when you least expect it. They will step step off of a plane or off of a bus or off of whatever into your life at exactly the moment you are ready. And one more time, I am having an experience that it feels like I'm not ready for. <laughs> My 14-year-old son is a thing of beauty. <laughs> uh, he is 5'11", he weighs 170 pounds, he uh, wears a size 13 shoe, and he eats about $300 worth of groceries a month. <laughs> um, now, being a new mother at 37 uh, with a new baby who's 14 is quite a job. <laughs> um, and um, things went beautifully for us in the first three months we were together. He was so thrilled to be in my life, and I was so thrilled to have him in my life, that he made straight A's in school. He got involved in junior high. He, uh, we laughed and giggled and acted silly and went to movies and, and, um, I worked hard and so did he. I got a call one day and, uh, the principal of the junior high said, your son has been ditching school for two weeks. I said, he's what? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I couldn't believe it. That evening when my son came home, I said, Honey, do you understand what's going on here? I said, You know, seven years ago they said I was an unfit mother. Now you're proving it. You're ditching school. That's against the law. You're jeopardizing our relationship. For God's sake, don't do it. He said, Mother, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. (laughs) 
So we made it through graduation from junior high. Um, we made it through the summer. This fall, he entered his freshman year in high school. And he has said to me so many times, Mother, I love you so much. I have never been happier in, than I am in Tucson, Arizona. I love Amphitheater High School. And he is doing everything in his power to destroy those things. Because every once in a while he gets drunk and blows it. In fact, he ditched school so much that he got kicked out of high school. On a Friday night about three weeks ago, he didn't come home. All night. He just didn't come home. And I couldn't believe it. And I was absolutely panic-stricken. And I knew he had some horrible thing had happened to him. You know how your mind can work when you're a mother. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, even though I had forgotten how to be a mother, man, I remembered in a hurry. <laughs> uh, you, you pick that up, it's like riding a bicycle. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're a mother. <laughs> And um, a few days later, I said, honey, why didn't you come home all night? I don't understand why. Out of the clear blue, you just didn't come home all night. And you didn't call. And you didn't, I don't understand. And he looked at me and he said, my God, mother, I got drunk. And I said, oh, okay. And... Um, Three weekends ago, I went to Phoenix, Arizona to talk at a convention, and when I got home on Sunday night, my son was not there, and his toothbrush and his radio were gone, and that's an ominous sign, <laughs> and I didn't know where he was, and I didn't know why. I only knew that God, as I understand him, does not make any mistakes within any of us. And again, I fell apart, and the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to me and put their arms around me and said, Honey, we'll love you through it. And one evening, my mother called. I had called to tell her that what was happening and that I didn't understand, and she said, Cindy, love, I had said to several people on several occasions, I can't, it just seems like I'm not good for him. I mean, even even though his father had a heavy hand and kept tight control and made sure who my son was with and where he went and how long he went there and that he came home, my son never ditched school in Kansas. He never got drunk in Kansas. He never did the things in Kansas that he does now in Tucson. It must have been an incredible shock for him to come from that into my life of almost complete freedom. And he is testing that freedom to every limit. And I don't blame him. I did too. And my mother called one evening. And she said, Cindy, love, I want to share with you an experience that I had in 1970 when you were in a hospital in Wichita, Kansas, kicking heroin. And a professor that had worked with you came to me and he said, you are teaching me an incredible lesson. It is so easy to love our children when they're doing well. You are teaching me how to love a child when she's not. 
And you see, that's the story of Alcoholics Anonymous. You love us when we're not doing well. My mother loved me even when I wasn't doing well. It is now my path to love my son when he's not doing well. And you see, I am a mother. I simply don't want my baby to hurt. I know what he's facing. I know, my God, what he's walking into. I also know there is a distinct possibility that he will not survive the experience of alcoholism alive. I also know that if that is God's will for me, I will somehow have the power to carry it out. And I said to my friends and to my God, I accept the possibility of having to send my son away so that someone somewhere can help him. And he was gone all week, and his counselor would call and say he's living on a rooftop, and now the police are chasing him. And I was saying, oh, my God, just bring my baby home. Just let me help him. While all the time accepting the possibility that I couldn't help him. And I said to my friends and I said to my God, maybe I have to be willing to send him away. Maybe I must accept the possibility that I can't help him. And last Tuesday night, the phone rang and a quiet, trembling voice said, Mom, I'm hungry and I'm very cold and I have no place to go. Can I come home? And I said, yes, of course. Of course you can come home. And I will do the best I can to walk with you one day at a time through whatever experiences you invite into your life. And you see, you have prepared me so well for whatever I have to do in sobriety. You have helped me learn that I am powerless over alcohol, that my life is unmanageable, that it doesn't have to be manageable, because since I am slowly being restored to sanity, I can give it to God. I can turn my life and my will over to God as I understand him, and he will do it just fine. And he will help me when I have to hurt, and he will help me when I have to grow, and he will help me through the steps that require I take a searching and fearless moral inventory and share it with another person. And through that inventory process, see what I've tried to share with you today, that there are no mistakes. And to realize that I have never, ever been punished for my character defects. I have been punished by them. They do just fine in helping me let go, absolutely. I will and I do let go of my defects of character exactly when I can. <laughs> not a minute before, not a minute too late. As a matter of fact, the reason I have to let God do it is because I don't know for sure what is and what isn't a defect of character. You see, I realize today that being willing to go to any lengths 
to get what you have was a part of my life on the streets. <laughs> I did that quite well out there. You have helped me learn how to do it more productively in here. My total obsession with drugs and alcohol has been changed to an obsession with sobriety and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're everywhere. They work for everything. They do it all for me and through me. And through making amends to those I have harmed, I find a new me. I find that it may or may not make a bit of difference to them, that it makes all of the difference to me. To make the amends wherever possible is one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever had. The change it brings about in me is total. It helps me change my shame to dignity, my hopelessness into faith. And then you provide for me the last three steps, which are a part of my life daily. And through the twelfth step, through sharing my experience, strength, and hope with you this morning, with newcomers to Alcoholics Anonymous, with wet drunks, I have found out so many things. I have found that the most shameful, humiliating, degrading experiences of my life are today the greatest gifts I have. They are the things I hold out to you when you are new and say, it ain't no big deal. I know it hurts. Let it hurt. Let it bleed and let me love you. Let it out. Because we won't send you away no matter what. We will very simply love you through it all. Whatever it is, however it hurts, we will love you all the way into what you are. And we are so magnificent in sobriety. We do such incredible things. Our lives open up in such amazing ways. And as I am beginning to learn... I learn my greatest lessons through pain, and when I learn through pain, I have available to me the greatest joy I have ever known. I have available to me the experience of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, one day at a time, one step at a time, one minute at a time. And you see, having had a spiritual awakening, as the result of these steps, I try very simply to share who and what I am today, because whatever it is, and it is changeable on a daily basis, whatever it is, it seems to be okay with you, and you have given me the gift of letting it be okay with me, and just letting it be, and letting it grow from God, and from within me, and from within you, and to share it whenever possible, wherever possible, because wherever I am, 
Whatever spot I occupy in this universe is exactly where I'm supposed to be. It is God's spot for me. And I am very glad that there's a chair for me in Alcoholics Anonymous, that you have kept it warm even when I went out, and that you have kept it open for me no matter what. Even when I lost my dignity, my peace, my serenity, my hope in sobriety, you kept my chair warm, and you put your arms around me, and you said, walk with us, walk through it, we will love you together. We are in love, in God's love, in AA's love, in the most perfect love I have ever known. We are very simply in love together. Thank you.